Do you think the jihad needs you? I know that the jihad doesn't need me, but I need it. Are you thinking we should do that with the help of violence? Are you convinced at this point? Never hate so intensely and never love so intensely. Uh, volunteers who came from all over the world were about 900. We buried 350 there. It was a very peaceful religion. Is that kind of what you're saying? Islam is not a religion of peace. And Islam basically, by the way, is one of the most capitalistic in a free market religions you could ever find. The embassy was actually a front for the CIA. So, you know, a lot of people have lived interesting lives, but some tells me today's guest has lived maybe a little bit more of an interesting life. You'll find out here in a second when I tell you this man went from being part of Al-Qaeda. Yes, Al-Qaeda in 1996. He met Osama bin Laden for the same, first time. You'll kind of hear how that process takes, uh, takes place. And in December 98, he leaves and he goes from Al-Qaeda to joining MI6. And he writes a book. The title of the book is Nine Lives, My Time as MI6 Top spy inside al-Qaeda. With that being said, Ayman Dean, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you for having me. So you've lived a quite, uh, you know, interesting life there. That, 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 that qualifies for interesting. I <laughs> uh, sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, so can you take us back and kind of tell me about your upbringing, where you grew up at, so the audience knows. Obviously, I got all the notes here in front of me, but if you don't mind taking a moment and sharing with that and then how uh, 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 how you got recruited into Al-Qaeda, I think that'd be a good way to start. Well, I can say that I was more of the typical Middle Eastern salad, you know, if you could say it that way, like, because I uh, was uh, a Bahraini uh, national uh, born in Saudi Arabia uh, to a father who was born in Iraq, you know, to, uh, you know, and his mother was uh, half Turkish, half Greek Jewish, and my mother was from Lebanon. So, you know, I ended up basically like, I mean, being a true Middle Eastern, um, you know, uh, mix uh, to the point where I remember when I looked at my DNA, many, mm. many years later, I found that 40% um, from the Middle East, 30% from Persia, 10% uh, from Turkey and the Caucasus, you know, and about 10, 12% from the Indian subcontinent, including Afghanistan. So I, I, I thought, wow, uh, what a mix. But nonetheless, if you grow up in Saudi Arabia in the 1980s, and you you know you will be growing up in a society that was deeply, deeply conservative Sunni Muslim, um, and where I lived actually was a mix of Shia and Sunnis because I lived in the uh, eastern part of the country. So and I lived in the most um, divisive era you could ever imagine. Imagine that my mother was from Lebanon, so she was worried about the Lebanese civil war that was mm -hmm. taking place in her mother country. Uh, at the same time, just a few hundred kilometers away to the north, uh, Iraq was locked in a deadly war with Iran uh, for eight years, from 1980 until 1988. Uh, so in our school, I remember- I was living in Iran at that time when that was going on in Tehran, 80 to 88. It was not pretty, it was ugly. Exactly. So I remember where I grew up in, in our school, um, one-third one of the uh, students were uh, Shia and two-thirds were Sunnis. So it was almost like supporting two opposing football teams. So the Sunnis will support Saddam Hussein uh, and Iraq, and uh, the uh, Shia will be supporting Iran and Ayatollah Khomeini. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, for us kids, it was very strange. I mean, how uh, would you desynthesize war to the point where basically, like, you know, you view it as a contest, you know, between two teams and you make it so sectarian, you know, that, you know, we are all Saudis or Gulf people there, and yet we were supporting different uh, sides of the war according to our uh, sectarian preferences. So, if that doesn't politicize a young child at mm. such young age, I don't know what would uh, <laughs> do actually. Um, and then, you know, ironically, the man who we supported, the man who we were cheering up for, Saddam Hussein, in uh, August of uh, 1990, decided to stab us in the back, or well, actually the front, um, moved into Kuwait. Um, and as a result, my city, uh, Khubar, was the first major city from the Kuwaiti border. Uh, so three hours drive from the Kuwaiti border, we started to see what I would call in 1990, the richest caravan of refugees you could ever imagine. Imagine refugees coming in BMWs, Mercedes, Cadillacs. Um, you know, it was a weird sight to see. People who wore same Arabic dresses as us, they spoke the same accent, uh, almost the uh, same tribal uh, makeup. And yet they were running away from the person who until two months ago, we were cheering up, you know, calling him the, um, you know, the hero of the Arab world, uh, the guardian of the Eastern gate as, you know, the Arabs used to call him. Um, and, you know, he basically stabbed us, you know, basically in <laughs> front and back. Um, and that of course resulted in a massive international effort uh, to uh, expel him. How that happened? Well, from seeing rich refugees coming into my city, I started seeing many American soldiers landing in my city because my city also was the host of the largest uh, military air base in the entire Middle East, uh, King Abdulaziz Air Base. So, I mean, I was seeing, you know, hundreds of US Humvees and uh, you know armored vehicles just going around. Uh, these American soldiers were very approachable, very friendly. They were- What year is this? What uh, year? 1990. Got it, okay. Of course they were, at that year, they were friendly. They were not yet, <laughs> they haven't yet faced the, uh, uh, you know, the hostility that uh, grew up mm-hmm. with the Qaeda basically of the later 1990s. And so they were even lining up uh, in the um, uh, fast food chains in order to order burgers and fries and all of that. And they were just happy to mingle with the local population because for us, we saw them as the protectors from a impending uh, Iraqi invasion uh, that Saddam Hussein wanted to control uh, the oil wells and the oil uh, wealth uh, of the Gulf. And therefore we were afraid we would be next after Kuwait the presence of the American soldiers and the American forces was a reassuring presence. But at the same time, I was a religious kid. Uh, my religious leaders uh, at the time were opposing completely the presence of the American troops. Uh, they were saying that it is completely against the spirit of Islam that in the Arabian Peninsula, an army of half a million Christian soldiers are present. This is not what was uh, supposed to happen. And therefore, they were they are supposed to be expelled rather than being invited. Now, this is where the first 
you know, uh, took place, you know, in my mindset. I was by the time 11, uh, going on 12, and I was already heavily politicized uh, kid because of everything that was happening around me. Let me ask you, at that time, when you were 11 years old, about to be 12, in your mind, who's America, who's Iran, who's Israel, in your mind? For us, Iran was the sectarian threat. Um, Israel was the occupier of the holy sites. Um, America was the big bully, you know, kid on the uh, block, but with cool gadgets. That's how we viewed America at the time. Okay. Yeah. So, so please continue. Yeah. You're 11 years old, about to be 12 years old. Exactly. So for me, the, you know, I started to become more confused about what to believe anymore. I mean, you know, should I cheer the American presence um, and the fact that they will be not only defending us against a potential invasion by Saddam Hussein, but also expel Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait? Because for us, it's still... The Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was unjust, and he is not supposed to have invaded Kuwait, and therefore he needs to be expelled. Uh, and that is, I think, where um, at that time I was in reading a leaflet uh, I saw in one of the mosques. Uh, that leaflet was saying that it was a big historical mistake on, uh, you know, uh, cat with catastrophic proportions that we have allowed the Americans to come in. The solution was to raise an army of jihadists, an army of mujahideen to push back Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. Who signed that pamphlet, which I saw in that mosque? Osama bin Laden. And mm. that was the first time I heard, and I read the name Osama bin Laden, that he is one of the leaders of the Arab jihadists in Afghanistan, fighting against the Soviets and then later the communist regime in Kabul. And he was opposed to it, opposed to the presence of American forces. Um, and he was talking about the fact that you can't have uh, an American Christian army present in the um, holy sanctified land of Arabia. Although I was wondering, there is nothing holy about my city. I mean, yes, there is Mecca, Medina, that's holy, but the rest of it is not. However, you know, for Osama bin Laden and for many of those who were like-minded, including the uh, leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Saudi Arabia, the other hybrid group, you know, which is the hybrid Salafists, Wahhabists, and Muslim Brotherhood groups, they were not exactly happy with the presence of the American forces. They believed, basically, that the solution should come from within, uh, you know, the so-called Muslim Ummah or the Muslim nation. Um, however, I was thinking at the time, how could the solution come from the, within the Muslim Ummah when many parts of the so-called Muslim nation were actually supporting Saddam Hussein, including Yasser Arafat, for God's sake, mm. uh, as well as you know the leaders of Yemen and Sudan? Um, that is, I think, where um, you know my mind was uh, spinning around faster than you know uh, I could actually comprehend in terms of who to believe and what to follow. Nonetheless, the war, the Gulf War, took place um, in January of 1991. Um, and uh, for us, it was the first televised war. And this is the first time ever in my life I saw CNN. So at the time, CNN was the network station that broadcasted the war live for everyone to see, whether from Baghdad uh, or from, you know, the, uh, from our, even our own city, 
which was due to the presence of the air base uh, subject to a SCUD missile attack by the Iraqi uh, forces. And of course, basically, it's the first time we, um, we, you know, we were subject to air raid sirens. Um, we have to put the uh, gas masks on ourselves because we were suspecting that we will be attacked by chemical weapons, that the missiles are carrying chemical warheads. We were, of course, living through a nightmare. And that is, I think, where my first experience of war, it was not as brutal as those who experienced it, of course, in Baghdad and other Iraqi cities. But nonetheless, it was the first time I felt what it feels like to be subject of an attack by such sophisticated weaponry, but also glad for the American air defense network, the uh, Patriot system, which shot down the vast majority of those missiles before they reached the ground. Although near the end, I remember I was at the roof of my house when I saw one of the missiles in a basically landing just only 800 meters from my house. And it hit a barracks, you know, a building where 28 American soldiers were killed um, uh, due to that attack. So I remember I saw all the ambulances going and I saw dozens of them, the firefighters and uh, heard the news and somehow it made me sad, um, you know, the death of the soldiers. And that was, I think, the last time the death of American soldiers made me sad for many years to come because at later life, I became so radical in my thoughts that I would end up celebrating the death of American soldiers rather than the other way around. Uh, how did that, how did that uh, indoctrination take place? What were events that got you to believe in the fact that you should celebrate rather than mourn over the loss of uh, uh, American lives? What, what happened there? How did you get recruited? Who changed your way of thinking? Two events in particular, I would say. Um, the first event uh, was personal. Um, at the age of 12, just uh, months after the end of the Gulf War, uh, my uh, mother passed away. Uh, she was only 49 at that time. It was a brain aneurysm. Uh, it was sudden, um, just as brain aneurysm is, you know, is, it goes undetected. Um, and that's it. She collapsed. Two days later, she died. Um, and uh, for me, of course, as a young religious kid at that time, for me, it was all about finding answers. I was the youngest of my brothers, you know, so it helped that there were older brothers in the house who would, you know, more or less offer some comfort and support. Um, my dad already was dead when I was four. So basically, like, you know, for me, uh, the passing of my mother was, you know, the loss of the last, I would say, moral compass, that stabilizing factor, that anchor that like actually yeah. keeps you safe and secure and grounded. Unfortunately, that was gone. And for me, I drifted into... Uh, if, for example, kids, when they have some freedom, usually, like, you know, basically, they will use that freedom towards, um, you know, going out with their, you know, with their uh, uh, friends, hanging out, smoking, you know, doing something like, you know, basically bad or whatever. For me, I was more of a nerdish, you know, kid, more into books. And so the drifting was more subtle, more political and ideological and religious. And I ended up basically looking into uh, ways to find solace and uh, how can I say, uh, you know, consoling basically in um, religious texts. And one of my teachers at that time said to me that there is a book that if you read, it could help you deal with your grief. 
And I said to him, what is that? He said, there is a book written by an Egyptian ideologue um, and a thinker. His name is Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb, of course, basically had a great impact, not only on my country, but yours also, you know, basically in Iran, uh, because, uh, you know, he actually, his writings were translated by the current Ayatollah Ali Khamenei when he was imprisoned. And it provided the framework of political Islam to take shape in Iran and then later in other uh, Islamic movements across the Arab and Muslim world. And so for me, I was told that I should read his books. What is the book I was supposed to read? A book called In the Shades of the Quran. Um, it is 4,000 pages written over nine years period. And all of these nine years, you know, this book was written between the years of 1954 and 19. Uh, 63, when Sayyid Qutb was in jail in Egypt. And the Egyptian jails in the 1950s and 60s were not exactly a picnic. I mean, it was a horror show, to say the least. So he wrote uh, his interpretation, his literary um, interpre interpretation of the Quran from the prism of pain, grief, uh, and torture and darkness and loneliness and grief, you know. So his commentary on the Quran was, while beautiful in its words and imagery and literary value, it was really all geared towards one aim and one goal, as he always keep repeating this. It is to establish the kingdom of God on earth as he ordained it to be. So the, you know, this concept of God's kingdom on earth and that it needs to be achieved through violence, you know, if necessary, which is jihad, in order to achieve a pure Islamic society that would drive away most of the grief and the pain and the suffering that we are experiencing because of the disillusionment and the ill governance that is taking place in the Arab and Muslim world at the time. Remember, he was opposing, he was a socialist uh, at early stages of his life. He dabbled in communism. Then later he became an Islamist, opposing both capitalism and socialism and communism. So basically he uh, arrived at the conclusion that only Islamism could offer a salvation, a solution to the Muslim masses that are yearning for justice. That is Sayyid Qutb. So I ended up between the ages of 12, to the age of 14, reading the writings of Sayyid Qutb and basically being influenced so heavily name? by how him. Do you, how do you spell his name? Uh, Sayyid, which is S-A-Y-Y-E-D, and then Qutb, which is Q-U-T-B. And this book he wrote, you said 4,000 pages. He wrote in eight, nine years of being in jail in Egypt in the 50s to 60s. And was he, you said prior to that, he was a communist and a communist to socialist to Islamist. Islam. Okay. So in that process, would you, who would you compare him to? Was he like the, was he like the Karl Marx minus the jail? Was he like the figurehead of sharing some of those philosophies with the people? What, 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 who would you compare him to? I, I, I think in my opinion, he was a revolutionary uh, thinker who basically for the first time ever, um, such as, you know, like Karl Marx and others, basically, who advocated the 
violence of the overthrow of the bourgeoisie governments by the oppressed uh, proletariats, he yeah. advocated the you know revol violent revolution by the masses to throw away the unjust, un-Islamic rule you know across the Muslim world and replacing it with Islamic uh, Sharia-based rule. What he called it the kingdom of God on earth, a semi-utopian society, you know, that is subject to God's laws, but is go are governed by men of God. Uh, that's how he uh, saw the evolution of societies in the Muslim and Arab world into a unified super um, Islamic structure, which is the caliphate, uh, the kingdom of God on earth. And he was the first one who advocated that since you know uh, violence or the deployment of violence throughout Islamic history was the prerogative of the state, uh, never the individual, he is the first one to actually advocate the deployment of violence by individuals to overthrow the state and to replace it with a Islamic state. Wow. So here's what it says here about him. It says, even though most of his observations and criticism were leveled at the Muslim world, Kutep is also known for his intense disapproval of the society and culture of the United States, which he saw as materialistic and obsessed with violence and sexual pleasures. He advocated violence, offensive jihad. Kutep has also been described by his followers as a great thinker and martyr of Islam, while many Western observers and some Muslims see him as key originator, originator of Islamist ideology and an inspiration for violent Islamic groups such as Al-Qaeda. Today, his supporters are identified by his opponents as Kutibists or Kutbi is what they describe him. So let me ask you, when you read this as a kid, um, at that point, was he already, uh, did he already have a lot of influence? He's written 30 books, he, you know, he's been around the block. Was he already an influential figure or not yet when oh, you first read it? He, he was, he was an influential yeah. figure, no question, because you see, uh, President Nasser of Egypt uh, executed him in 1966. Uh, so what he said before he died, which is a very famous quote by, quote by him, he said, our words remain dead candles with no life until we die for these words and then they are lit and they are alive and therefore basically he believed that by dying he will seal his legend that's why you know when he you know when he was uh, you know about to be hanged you know they brought a uh, a cleric you know to remind him you know to uh, say the words you know basically before he dies which is you know, la ilaha illallah, like, you know, there is no God but God. So he said, you know, to the uh, cleric, I die this word while you eat bread with that word. So the man knew what he was doing. He was sealing his legend to make sure that his revolutionary ideas will become even more intense and more credible because he died for them. He knew what he was doing, strategic. And by, by the way, he was hung because... He was conspired to assassinate the president. So, well, you know, that was one yeah. of the concerns about. But, but let me ask you, when you read the book, at, at this time when you first read it, you're how old? 12 years old, 13 years old? Yeah, between the ages of 12 and 14. So when you read this book the first time, 4,000 pages, what are you thinking when you're done reading it? Are you thinking this guy makes sense? I want to go bring the kingdom of God on earth. Are you thinking 
we should do that with the help of violence? Are you convinced at this point? By the time, yes. Because it wasn't just the book, but also the background of the society I was living in. Already there was the post-Iraq uh, war um, and the agitation by the followers of the Sayyid Qutb, the clerics I used to listen to. Uh, the, um, you know, just like uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, when he was using the cassette, you know, as the uh, medium through which he was able to communicate with the masses, the first- Very uh, effective. Exactly, the first social media, <laughs> you know, yep, platform. that's right. Uh, you know, to make sure that people who are taking taxis, you know, would listen to uh, his uh, sermons. Uh, it's the same thing. The cassette was the medium through these clerics were disseminating, you know, their, you know, revolutionary ideas about the fact that Saudi Arabia for them was not Muslim enough. Can you believe it? Like, I mean, for them, Saudi Arabia, which was a Wahhabist, a, you know, Salafist, uh, closed Muslim conservative society was not good enough even. Um, and therefore, there was the need to overthrow them, just like the Shah was overthrown. And therefore, we need to do it. I was so convinced at the time because uh, one, on one hand, I was reading this book and getting all of these ideas. And on the second hand, I was also listening to these clerics on the, you know, from their cassettes, listening to their lectures and sermons talking about the need for Islamic solidarity, Islamic awakening, Islamic renaissance, um, and the need to go from the repetitive, the boring, the, you know, the, you know, and this lack of, lack of dynamism, as they called it, into a more dynamic you know, Muslim society that can actually challenge the powers of the world at that time. However, that wasn't the only reason why my radicalization, you know, happened. There was another event, you know, uh, that also led me towards, you know, the jihad and the path of the uh, jihad, which was the Bosnian conflict, which was, you know, raging in 1992 at the time I was 14. So it just started. And at that time, the, uh, you know, my local mosque, the local charity that I used to belong to, started to collect uh, funds to help the Muslims of Bosnia, who were, of course, subject to the civil wars uh, and the horrors of the civil wars that were taking place in the former Yugoslav, uh, Yugoslav republics. Uh, Bosnia you know, was a country where uh, the Muslims made up about uh, half of the population. The other half was divided between Serbs and Croats. Uh, they voted for independence uh, from Yugoslavia. That led to the Serbs of the country declaring war on the uh, uh, Muslim majority, and as a result, uh, ethnic cleansing started to take place. Now, th these events were portrayed, uh, unfortunately and wrongly, um, in the Saudi media and the uh, Arab world, uh, you know, intellectual discourse, as a war between Christianity and Islam, because the Serbs invoked uh, Christian symbology. While in fact they were fighting a ethnic nationalistic uh, war that had, had nothing to do basically with Christianity, they were actually killing, you know, uh, their you know fellow Christians who were Croats. Um, you know, you know, of course, basically it was sectarian based because the Serbs were Orthodox and uh, you know the Croats were Catholics. But nonetheless, like you know, even the Croats were subject to ethnic cleansing, and they were not Muslims. Basically, they were Christians. But it was portrayed this way. 
uh, in our media and in our religious discourse uh, in Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab and Muslim world. So suddenly, we are not only collecting funds to help you know, the uh, Muslims there um, withstand the onslaught of the Serbs, suddenly we started to see people from our community, including a teacher of mine at school who was a math teacher from a affluent uh, family, would travel there with a member of the Bahraini royal family. Uh, both of them would die there over the summer of 1992 and fighting alongside the Bosnians against the Serbs. And suddenly, you know, we started to hear that, you know, a uh, few words put together in one sentence, jihad, martyrdom, and sacrifice, all in one word. And suddenly the Bosnian conflict, which was raging, um, you know, uh, 3,000 miles away, where you know, was in fact present in our own classroom because our teacher is missing. You know, our math teacher is missing, but he was killed in action in Bosnia. Uh, he's a Saudi, you know, from the Saudi deserts, has nothing to do with the um, lush European mountains of the Balkans. But that Islamic solidarity and that sense of Islamic duty towards oppressed Muslim minority more or less ignited that need in him to go and fight the jihad. So I was asking myself, if my teacher can do it, why can't I? And two years later, when I became 16, the catalyst for that event happened when uh, one of my friends, even though he was three years my senior, he was actually going to join the jihad in Bosnia. I learned from his brother that he was leaving so when I was going to his home, you know, to say goodbye, I ended up knocking on his door. And instead of saying goodbye, I was saying, I want to come with you. And I remember, like, I mean, he was, you know, even though he was 19, you know, he himself was young, but he was telling me, since I'm 16, I just became 16 four days ago. You know, since you're 16, you can't go. Like, and I mean, jihad is not a picnic. He was telling me, Amen, for God's sake, you are only 16. Do you know what jihad is? You know, people will not just only die, they could actually get wounded, bullets, ho bullet holes, amputations. You know, you could step on a mine and lose your leg. Uh, you know, it's not a picnic. Do you think the jihad needs you? I remember what I, you know, that my answer changed his mind and changed my own life. I said to him, Khaled, I know that the jihad doesn't need me, but I need it. I want to go, I, you know, I need it for my own betterment. I don't want to be a spectator on the, you know, uh, you, know, on, uh, you know, on the seats, basically watching the caravan of history passing me by, wishing that I, you know, made my own, you know, writings on the pages of history. No, I, I wanted to be part of it. I don't want to be a spectator anymore. That's it. Um, and that changed his mind and he decided to take me with him and, um, uh, two weeks later, we were in uh, Vienna, you know, on our way to Bosnia. During your time as a, you know, when you went to Bosnia, and as well as once you joined Al-Qaeda, what are some things you witnessed yourself? Well, where to start? Like, I mean, uh, I think the right question is, what didn't, what didn't I witness? Um, you know, in the sense, like, and I mean, you see everything once you are in a, uh, a war, a brutal war like Bosnia. I mean, you see mass graves, you see the charred remains of villages, uh, you see... Uh, destroyed mosques, destroyed churches. Uh, you see, you know, prisoner exchanges where instead of seeing prisoners, you know, who are wearing military uniforms and, uh, you know, big, you know, hairy men, 
Instead, you see children being exchanged, you know, basically, like, I mean, who were, you know, in the camps, you know, being held prisoners. You see young 14-year-olds who were held for two years as captives, and you hear the horror stories, basically, of them being gang raped. You know, you see a lot of this because of the hatred, the deep hatred that was beneath the surface between the communities there. Um, and this is a warning to uh, many people across the world, you know, um, is never hate so intensely and never love so intensely. You never know who will be your enemies one day and who will be your friends one day. Moderation in everything basically is the key towards longevity of any society. Um, you know, so this is exactly what I've seen, um, you know, and of course, basically, you know, when we went to Bosnia, we were four. We left Bosnia, we were two, because we buried two of our, you know, friends uh, back. I mean, the number of the uh, volunteers who came from all over the world were about 900. We buried 350 there. Um, wow. So, so, so basically, like, I mean, the life expectancy was really short for anyone who was there. Um, I was wounded in action there, you know, basically, although it was a mild one. I, you know, basically seen for my eyes, like, you know, for, you know as, as a 16-year-old, things that, you know, well, a 16-year-old shouldn't have witnessed, like, you know, but then what made me resilient is that I've seen the 13 and the 14 and the 11 and the 9-year-olds, you know, basically, who've seen the horrors of all being more resilient. And that basically gave me hope, you know, basically, that if they can um, put up with it, if they can go through it, then I can. Ayman, let me ask you, uh, first time you met Osama bin Laden, how old were you? Well, it was um, just before my uh, 18th birthday. Uh, it was August, uh, the first week of August of 1996. Um, you know, so I was about to become 18 in about maybe like, in, I mean, uh, five weeks, six weeks. Um, you know, I, by that time I was in Afghanistan. You know, the whole scene shifted now. Bosnia uh, was over, the war was over there. And uh, on the advice, uh, in Bosnia, where I met him, on the advice of the uh, mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, when he came to visit us in Bosnia, his advice was, go to Afghanistan, get training, you know, prepare for the next phase of the war, the camps are reopening. So I followed his advice uh, after a brief detour uh, to the Caucasus, and I ended up in Afghanistan in 96. Uh, so uh, two months after my arrival, or three months, I would think, um, Osama bin Laden returned from Sudan, where he was in exile there, to Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, where we were training, in our training camp, his location was only 45 minutes drive away. Um, so we heard that he was asking around if there are any people from uh, the Arabian Peninsula. He never wanted to say Saudi Arabia, you know, because he always believed that the House of Saud was illegitimate. So he was saying the Arabian Peninsula. So, you know, 14 of us um, decided to go and see him. Um, and when we went to see him, he was um, a guest at a compound that belonged to one of the uh, warlords of Afghanistan. His name was Yunus Palos. And I remember when, I, when, we, when we entered the compound, we saw so many people who were Egyptians and some people from uh, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, as well as himself uh, originally from Saudi Arabia. Um, but what we saw wasn't impressive. You know, they looked like refugees. Wasn't or it was? It wasn't impressive? Wasn't at all. Okay. It, you know, you see, the problem is many people, when they ask me the question, 
how was it, you know, your first time, you know, seeing Osama bin Laden and people expect me to say, oh, wow, it was so impressive. No, it wasn't. Um, and the reason is because everyone in the world, everyone in the world, their impression of Osama bin Laden is that neat white turban with the, you know, white, clean, well-ironed robes, you know, looking so, you know, uh, clean and tidy. Um, no, that wasn't how I saw Osama bin Laden the first time. He wore very creased robes and an Arabic headscarf over his head that was at, not at all seeing an iron for weeks, actually. And he looked really disheveled and as if basically he was just lucky to escape with his life. So, you know, the first impression wasn't the best impression, to be honest. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, um, when we sat in front of him, all 14 of us, and of course he had his lieutenants around him, including Abu Hafs al-Masri, uh, who was his deputy, uh, we sat in front of him to understand why he returned uh, back from Sudan. Of course, he was betrayed by the Sudanese leadership um, and uh, expelled. Uh, but nonetheless, he spoke um, about the divine mission that he is you know, embarking on, the divine path laid in front of him, because he was believing that it was destiny, it was fate that brought him from Sudan all the way back to Afghanistan to enact God's plans in the old ancient prophecies of Islam to, uh, regarding the armies of the black banners, you know, and the victorious vanguard sweeping from Afghanistan all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the Arabian Peninsula, you know, paving the way for, you know, um, the fictional Imam Mahdi, you know, in or, you know, which is the Messiah figure in Islamic imagination, uh, in order you know, to uh, fill the world with justice after it was filled with injustice. Now, um, he saw, but by the way, Osama bin Laden was great at reading minds. And he, he would basically look at your face and will see, you know, whether you are a believer, a skeptical, you know, whether you, you know, are really going along with the flow or are you not like exactly like, I mean, understanding what he's saying. So he looked at our faces and he could tell that some of us were really skeptical. Um, you know, really, are we the, you know, fulfillment of the prophecies? So he said, you might see us right now as bunch of refugees, you know, people basically who just arrived, you know, escaping and lucky to be escaped with our lives. You know, it was a miracle actually that we made it without being caught, you know, here in Afghanistan. But he said, remember, that when the Prophet Muhammad, he escaped Medina, so, sorry, he escaped Mecca uh, on the night of his migration and flight uh, to uh, Medina. While he was escaping, the Arab tribes were hunting him. And the Arab knights were, you know, uh, hunting him because basically they wanted to win the bounty on his head. Um, one of the Arab knights, when he finally approached him, his horse uh, fell, broke his legs, and he was tumbling on the ground. So he thought that Muhammad used one of his magic tricks. So he said, you know, uh, you know, to the prophet, I can't let you just go to Medina. I have to, you know, bring you back. And so the prophet said, well, if you uh, let us go, then I promise you something. I promise you that you will be wearing the crown and the bracelets of the Persian emperor. So you know, that Arab knight said, what are you, out of your mind? Like, I mean, you are a fugitive in the desert. 
you know, of the Arabian desert, like, you know, basically, and you are threatening the might of Persia, you know, so he said, yes, I promise you that you will be wearing, you know, the crown and the bracelets of the Persian emperor. He said, put it in writing. So the prophet instructed his companion to, you know, write it for him, give him the parchment sealed with his seal, and that's it. So 16 years later, you know, that Arab knight was actually wearing, you know, uh, the crown and the bracelets of the Persian emperor after the conquest of uh, Tessaphon, um, in, I think in the year uh, 636 uh, AD or 637 AD. So, so Osama bin Laden used that incident to say, never ever underestimate what we can do here. We can change history if we believe in ourselves the same way that the prophet did. Ironically, he did change history when his operatives slammed those airplanes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon in the US. So this is the mindset of Osama bin Laden, the combative, fanatical, believing mindset of Osama bin Laden just days after he arrived you know, into Afghanistan from Sudan. Next to me, his knee touching my knee, was a man called Abu Ubaid al-Makki. Abu Ubaidah, a young Saudi, bespectacled with thick glasses, two years exactly on the 4th of August of 1998, two years after that, he was so mesmerized, of course, by Osama bin Laden's uh, talk. He went on to drive the van to the American embassy in Nairobi. So, um, and that, of course, exploded with you know, a considerable number of casualties. Uh, you know, 220 plus people were killed, uh, including 12 Americans, um, and as well as 5,000 people wounded. 150 of them were blinded for life. This is the effect of fanatical, eschatological, prophetic words that Osama bin Laden, you know, you know, basically delivered into our minds. You know, basically, and they had the effect of. Toxins, you know, they were toxic. That's the guy that was sitting right next to you that drove the van into the American embassy in Nairobi. Exactly. He's sitting right next to you. Let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, <clears throat> from your, uh, uh, you know, research on him and knowing him, now over the years, you've had access to a lot of different information yourself and you've done your own research, you've been around it. What, what, what things did Osama bin Laden admire was he also a guy who admired Said? Because I just looked up an article while you were speaking the uh, how Khomeini read the book that Said wrote three years after uh, he was assassinated, and in 1984, even in Iran, he sent some uh, a postcard showing the frowning face of Said behind prison bars before his execution. He issued a postcard. Khomeini did in '84, so that was his inspiration, right? Who was? Bin Laden's inspiration, a guy that he looked up to outside of Prophet Muhammad and the Quran, who else was it? Well, of course, it was Sayyid Qutb. Uh, no question about it. For, for him, Sayyid Qutb was the inspiration because he is the first to call for an Islamic revolution by the masses. It never happened before in Islamic history. Throughout Islamic history, you know, and just to let you know, for example, Muhammad, fact, the last cleric, you know, if we can, you know, use this word to describe him, to be the ruler of a society, because his successors after that 
were never from the clergy or the class of the clergy. You know, Abu Bakr was a merchant, you know, the first caliph. Omar was a merchant. Uh, Uthman was a super merchant, actually. And uh, Ali was a judge and a warrior. Um, and if you look at, uh, you know, all those who followed in the, the dynastic, um, you know, uh, empires like the Umayyads and the Abbasids and the Ottomans, they were all dynastic rulers, you know, without any, uh, you know, clerical or let's say basically religious, um, you know, upbringing themselves, uh, you know, so therefore, you know, the idea that Islam, you know, or Islamic uh, societies should be ruled by those who basically are clerics or members of the clergy is an anisma to the Islamic spirit itself. Um, and this is why, you know, the, um, you know, the Sayyid Qutb is the first to break away from that, you know, to break away from the idea that uh, the Islamic or the Muslim masses should obey their secular rulers that the Muslim masses have no right to deploy violence against the state, that only the state has the right to deploy violence and the protection of the state from enemies within the society and from outside. So he broke away completely. Like, you know, I mean, he, you know, he thrown out all of these, uh, you know, uh, conventions, uh, you know, outside of the window altogether and decided to come up with an ideology that is similar to communism, you know, in other words, basically he appropriated Islam in a communistic fashion because he was actually a communist before to revolutionize it in a way that enables the masses, the individuals to carry out arms against the state in order to replace it and to bring about uh, Islamic sovereignty, you see, if you look at, um, you know, uh, Shia Islam, jihad is almost absent there because jihad is only the prerogative of the imam. And since the imam is absent, therefore the, um, you know, the jihad is absent. For Sunni Islam, there are two kinds of jihad. You know, the defensive jihad, you know, if your society is overwhelmed by an enemy, you know, take up arms and defend yourself. Self-defense, that's understood. However, the offensive jihad, the uh, conquest jihad, which, which unfortunately many Muslims feel ashamed of and try to brush it under the carpet, you know, and say, oh, it doesn't exist. It exists. I'm sorry to say, like, you know, but thousands, you know, of books basically, like, you know, explain the concept and it exists there. I mean, and there is nothing to be ashamed about conquest. I mean, every empire did it, you know, throughout history from the Romans, you know, basically to the uh, Byzantines, to the Chinese, to the Indian empires and Incas and Aztec and, you know, British and French empire, everyone did conquest, that's fine. But, you know, Islam as a religion actually did, uh, Sunni Islam did in fact put together, you know, a theology of uh, conquest jihad. And however, that conquest jihad is only the prerogative of the head of the state. Only a state can sanction that. Now, Sayyid Qutb came after all these years, after 1350 years of solid theology, to come and say, no, 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 we have a third kind of jihad. It's called uh, Jihad al Tamkin or the Jihad of Sovereignty. The sovereignty jihad to restore Islam to sovereignty to the position where it belongs. So, I mean, you know, just like with suicide bombings, just like with many other aspects of uh, modern jihadism, there is a clear departure from the old agreed upon Islamic principles 
you know, the, you know, and uh, you, you know, this is why, like, you know, when people say that modern day jihadists, like, you know, basically are really, you know, uh, having twisted many of the interpretations of Islam, it is true to some extent, actually, because they did actually invent quite new uh, forms of theology just to justify the revolutionary ideas that they are, you know, basically um, supporting and propagating. Would you would you consider yourself a Muslim today? Uh, yes. Um, at the end of the day, thank God, like you know, Islam has you know more than seventy different schools of thought. Um, I would consider myself a hybrid between uh, a Sufi and Salafi. Although, like you know, some people would say what, but <laughs> you know, I view Islam basically as a spiritual uh, anchor, um, a something. Who basically, is, yeah. Sorry. Who's Prophet Muhammad to you? Who's Prophet Muhammad to you? A teacher. A teacher who's yeah. who's jesus to you um a divine prophet got it uh, who's salman rushdie to you and what he wrote about in his satanic verses ah um i would say a very mediocre writer <laughs> a very mediocre writer <laughs> yeah have you read the book yeah what did you, yeah. you think about it um basically like i mean um the writing wasn't great um you know basically but he based his uh, writing on, you know, basically a uh, a story that was uh, happened during the time of the prophet. Then he uh, took it and took extreme liberty with it in order, basically, to embellish it with imagery and with intrigue and with, um, you know, um, how can I say, like, an, you know, representation of Arab society at the time, you know. Uh, but, you know, I didn't, you know, while I didn't find it, um, you know, basically, like an, a great book. You know, basically, um, that's why I always used to say that uh, the biggest, uh, you know, supporter of Rushdie was always Imam Khomeini because his fatwa actually sold the books that's for him. Why, yeah, <laughs> made him a bestseller. <laughs> Khomeini made uh, Salman a multimillionaire. But uh, go, going back to it, so you know, you've have you seen Bill Maher when he goes and debates Muslim and he goes back and forth and he says, you know, seventy-five percent of Muslims are good, but twenty-five percent of our extremists. And I don't know if you've seen that before when they go back and forth on that debate. Are you are you insinuating or suggesting that the fact that the extremists are a byproduct of post Sayed and what he wrote pre that it was a very peaceful religion? Is that kind of what you're saying that oh. things change dramatically after Sayed? Oh, no, 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 definitely not. Um, first of all, Islam is not a peaceful religion. You know, let's put this to bed. Um, you know, uh, Islam is not a religion of peace. Uh, it, it never was. Uh, I just said to you before that there is actually like, you know, a jihad conquest you know, in, in Islam, basically, and the justification for conquest um, within Islam itself. Um, but Islam is not a religion of war either, uh, basically. You know, it is a, a very, uh, what I would call a mercantile imperial religion. You know, so basically it is, you know, it, it basically views the conquest of new lands as an opportunity for taxation and, uh, you know, com commerce. So for them, they were almost copying the Roman Empire, you know, basically expansion. We need to expand because we need more citizens, so they pay more tax. We need to expand because basically this is our, this is our commercial destiny. Don't forget, Islam was founded by a merchant. You know, Prophet Muhammad, in fact, he started his life as a merchant. Um, and therefore, and Islam basically, by the way, is one of the most capitalistic, you know, free market religions you could ever find. You know, the prohibition of taxation, but, you know, the, you know, the opening of free trade, you know, that putting uh, tariffs and uh, trade barriers is anti-Islamic, 
you know, so basically it is one of those, you know, religions that actually one of the mottos of um, uh, one of Muhammad's uh, disciples when he arrived uh, to Medina, you know, poor and destitute, when he was offered charity, he said, no, 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 just show me where the market is. So this show me where the market is became a, you know, uh, synonymous with Islam as a, a religion of trade, but of course, a trade support with imperial force. Um, so this is how I could describe Islam in all honesty. Uh, and by the way, you, you're, not, you're not just somebody that's saying that you, I don't know how old you were when you could do this, you memorize every word in the Quran, right? I was 12 by the time I uh, finished uh, the process. I started at the age of nine, 33 months later, basically, I finished memorizing the Quran. Is that pretty common for uh, kids at that age to memorize the Quran? I don't think that's uh, common, right? I, I think one out of 20, uh, at least in my town, like, you know, basically, it was almost one out of 20 who would do it. That's still a big number. I mean, in America, I don't know if one out of a thousand kids memorize every <laughs> word in the U.S. Bible. You know, I mean, um, I don't know how many people. Do. Yeah, but I think the Quran is a little bit smaller than the Bible. If we put together still, the Old and the yeah. New Testament, the Quran has about 6,000, um, you know, uh, 236 verses, um, roughly about 143,000 words. So basically, it is not that easy to, uh, not that difficult to memorize, but not that easy either. Like, you know, basically, in, yeah. So it's still a challenging thing to exactly. do, but, but let me let me go, go. So let's go back to Osama bin Laden. So you hear him speak. You, the guy next to you goes and drives the van into the embassy in Nairobi. You know, lives 150 people are permanently blind. We see this all over the news. I think it was 98. I don't know the exact year when that happened, late 90s. And uh, at this point, you're hearing this. What's next move for you? Because you stayed there only for, uh, what was it, two years? You know, December of 98, right? December 98 is when you left. So what was the experience like when you were in there? Did you ever get close to him to kind of see how he thinks, Osama? And then what caused you to want to leave? I remember when I gave my allegiance to him and joining Al-Qaeda, um, I remember he looked at me and he said, that he wants me uh, to go and uh, to uh, become part of Al-Qaeda's explosives, chemicals, uh, explosives, chemical and biological weapon program. Why? Because he said, you don't look like the materials of you know, commandos. You're not a commando material. You're not going to be you know, someone who would be carrying heavy weapons and storming. You know, What's that to him? What, what, who is the right material of a commander to him? Uh, well, five foot nine, you know, and above, I, I'm five foot seven. Um, also, basically, someone who's not actually wearing glasses all the time, someone basically with a better eyesight, um, you know, but nonetheless, basically, you know, he said, I see that, you know, you have an aptitude for math and science and, yeah. uh, you know, you will be the perfect fit for that, like, you know, I mean, so, um, so I ended up being sent by him uh, to a remote camp in Afghanistan, um, you know, which uh, was run by an Egyptian uh, former officer of the uh, bomb squad in the Egyptian army. Um, and he was already a veteran of the Afghan Jihad. He's been there since 1986. Um, he uh, was the master bomb maker in all of Afghanistan. And he was a master in his art. So the idea was is to go into that remote camp in the mountains and study with him. So that was, uh, for me, an eye-opening experience. I mean, basically, first of all, um, only very few people you know, make it into that uh, camp. And the reason is because when you go there, there are only four students each uh, course. So the course could run for seven months, but there are only four people who would be studying. That's it. So the camp is really small. 
And the reason for the small number is to limit the possibility of a mistake. The bigger the number of students, the easier it is to have a mistake. And the problem is with making bombs, as anyone will know, that your, your first mistake is your last mistake. That's it. No more mistakes to be made. Um, you don't get second chances. Exactly. So, you know, so there I've learned, you know, uh, the, the basics of explosive makings and then into, you know, the bomb making and then into uh, chemical weapons, poisons, and then into biological weapons. You know, it took about seven, eight months. But it was extremely eye-opening, you know, for me. And I remember the uh, three people who were studying with me. I had a Moroccan, a Tunisian, and a Saudi. Uh, the Saudi was later uh, years uh, an assistant of uh, Zarqawi and was captured by the Americans. His name was Hassan Gul. Uh, the Moroccan was, um, you know, later captured in Morocco in 2003, uh, attempting to blow up uh, synagogues there uh, in, um, you know, in uh, Morocco. And then uh, the Tunisian, who was a pure, pure, pure psychopath, um, this Tunisian guy uh, ended up. What was his name? What was the Tunisian's name? Uh, his name was Abu Nassim. That's the alias, but his real name was uh, Muiz Fazdan. He ended up actually masterminding the um, terrorist attacks uh, on behalf of ISIS in Tunisia uh, in recent years. Uh, the attack in the Bardot Museum and later uh, in the uh, Sousa uh, beach, which killed 31 British tourists. Um, so he was the mastermind of these attacks. Now, um, I would say that, you know, in, you know of, out of all the people uh, who were with me uh, in that camp, he was the closest to me. I don't know. Was I like you know, <laughs> attracting a psychopath? Or <laughs> um, but, and he was the best cook. He was, you know, he lived in Italy. So his pasta cooking skills were legendary. Um, you know, and uh, you know, so we used to have pasta, yes, in Afghanistan, in the middle of the mountains. We used to have pasta, you know, for um, uh, dinners there. And while we are busy learning, you know, how to make uh, bombs and explosives. Now, then, of course, came August of uh, 1998. You know, that was a seminal event in my life because that is when that young man who was my friend from the camp who came with me to see Osama bin Laden and to listen to him uh, two years earlier. He, uh, of course, went on to blow up the American embassy in Nairobi and another guy then blew up the American embassy in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania um, and simultaneously. Of course, when the news came to the camps, I mean, you know, people were saying rejoice, you know, the largest CIA station in East Africa where bombed to the ground and i was thinking okay cia station that's amazing that's good um but then of course like many other young qaeda members i have a radio so i have a radio and i was listening you know to one of the radio stations from the arab world like you know basically we pick up in the mountains it was kuwait uh, radio um and also we used to pick up the bbc arabic so they said that it was the american embassies in nairobi in kenya and dar es salaam in tanzania so I thought, uh, that's, you know, okay, um, one minute here. Why are we bombing embassies? Uh, that's one. And then when the news of the identities of those who were killed started to come, first, um, we were told that 12 Americans were killed in addition to about 220 innocent Kenyans, Somalis, and other Africans 
who were there, you know, basically to apply for visas, to visit their friends and family or to study or to do business in the US. So basically, and many others who were there at the wrong place at the wrong time. I just did not feel right because, you know, Al-Qaeda is preparing me to be the future bomb maker. I will be one of those who will be building one of these giant devices that will go into a van that will do exactly this. You know, it dawned on me more than any of the others in the camps because they are just foot soldiers. However, I'm the bomb maker of the future. I'm the one who is going to build this and kill these people. And I will be meeting God on the day of judgment with their blood on my hand, you know, basically. And they will be asking him, you know, ask this, you know, dude here, why did he kill us? So why did he build a device that actually ended our lives and ended the you know, our dreams, you know, so for me, like, you know, I mean, that epiphany, that moment was so, you know, uh, strong and powerful, powerful enough to question my whole existence within that framework, within Al-Qaeda. And I remember I went uh, to the um, uh, de facto mufti of Al-Qaeda at that time, the religious, you know, advisor, he's Egyptian, his name is Abu Abdullah al-Muhajir, and he himself was involved in the attack on another embassy three years earlier, the Egyptian embassy in Islamabad, when it was raised to the ground by a suicide bomber, he had a hand uh, in that operation too. So I went to ask him, I said, look, I'm not doubting. I just want my heart to be at peace here. You know, remember, you know, uh, Sheikh Abu Abdullah, his name is Abu Abdullah Al-Muhajir. I said, one day I will be building a device like this. So could you please help me understand how I can justify it? So he said, look, you know, the embassy was actually a front for the CIA. Okay, that I got, that's fine. What else? What about the people basically who were there? He said, ah, look, we have a fatwa in our Islamic theology that when the enemy is hiding within civilian populated areas, we have the right to attack. And then those civilians who died uh, the result of our action, then God will make it up to them. In other words, you know, the famous saying of kill them and God will sort them out. Um, you know, I said, okay, fine. You know, uh, wh wh where do you find this fatwa? He told me where to find it, you know, which is in uh, the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah, which is a scholar living 700 years ago. And I thought, goodness, that's 37 volumes. God help me, like, you know, where do I find it? But anyway, I asked him, I said, isn't it, you know, awful that 220 innocent people, you know, basically, you know, died because, so to get at 12 Americans. So he said to me, ah, come on, they were just a bunch of Africans, who cares? Um, I looked at him and I said, should you tell that to the Somalis in our camp here? You know, they wouldn't take it nicely. He said, oh, no, no, no. And on second thought, just don't tell them. Uh, yeah, casual racism was, what casual actually? <laughs> it was outrageous racism also exists within Al-Qaeda. Can you believe it? Even within Al-Qaeda, we were racist against each other. The Saudis against the Egyptians, the Algerians against the Egyptians, the Saudis, you know, and the Tunisians hated each, every, every single one of them. And the Yemenis were always described as ignorant mountain monkeys. Yes, you know, it was always like this. The, you know, Islamic solidarity, seriously. Anyway, so, so, 
I went. Uh, how many other how many other guys at that time are feeling the same way you're feeling? Were there other people coming up to you? Or were you the only person that was uh, second guessing everything? I was the only one from what I could tell. I was the only one. I went to the library of Al-Qaeda in Kabul. Uh, they have a massive library there um, for their Islamic Sharia courses. And so I searched for that fatwa in that uh, book. I found it. Um, and no resemblance whatsoever. It was talking about a very completely different, you know, era. It talk it talks about the uh, Mongol invasion of the Khawarizmid Persian Empire, you know, and how the Mongols had a practice where, when they sack a uh, a city in the Muslim world at that time, they will take some civilians from that city. They will make them push the siege towers, the Mongol siege towers, towards the walls of the next Muslim city they in they intend to sack. And of course, the Muslim defenders have a dilemma here. Do we shoot arrows and spears at uh, those four civilians who are being uh, coerced into pushing the siege tower towards our walls or not? So they sent urgent requests for fatwas and the fatwas came back. Look, they are already dead, whether you kill them by your own hands or the, by, by the Mongol hands when they are, once they are done with them. So defend yourselves, kill them to prevent the siege towers from coming into your walls. Now, can you see here any resemblance between that fatwa and how they actually applied it in the case of the American embassies in Nairobi and uh, Dar es Salaam? I mean, I I'm sorry, but I didn't see the American yeah. embassy in Nairobi pushing siege towers towards Mecca or Medina. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, at that point, you know, that's, that's kind of how, you know, when, when uh, certain pastors interpret the bible scripture in their own way to manipulate some audiences and these are when uh, they go away from the bible and they you want to create their own church and i'm the you see this a lot of time with some people doing that to be able to win people over but go back to it so that even takes place you said that's that's august 98 i just you know the the you still are there for four more months during those four more months that you're there, are you being recruited by MI6? Are you gathering intel? Are you like, I don't know how to leave this place. I'm afraid to leave. What if they kill me? Uh, maybe I still want to stick around. What are you thinking for those four months before you left? Actually, I was, I was waiting for my uh, departure date. Um, so by September, you know, roughly about like, and I mean, uh, four weeks after the incident, I made my mind after I read the fatwa, after, of course, the uh, cruise missile attack against our camps you know, by uh, President Clinton, I decided that I don't want to be part of this anymore. One day they will tell me to build a device like this. It's inevitable. I don't want to be the author of death of many innocent people who I will never meet. I will never know who they are. And I was always wondering in the back of my mind, you know, that when my death date comes, I will be facing them in the afterlife. No, thank you. I don't want to be in that position. So I decided to leave. The problem is I already have a departure date for a medical checkup in Qatar. It was an important medical checkup because a year earlier, I had been struck by both malaria and typhoid at the same time. And that caused some damage to the liver. So the hospital in Qatar that treated me because there wasn't enough, you know, advanced medical facilities in Afghanistan or Pakistan at the time to treat me. 
They told me you have to come back in a year time exactly to make sure that there is no damage or no lasting damage. So I decided that I have to use that. But the problem is that date is December 8th. And between September you know, and you know, uh, December, you know, there are few months, but I have to stay there. I have no other choice you know, to wait for that departure date, which is allocated for me. And so therefore I waited, but I wasn't waiting doing nothing i ended up actually like you know subconsciously you know uh, gathering a lot of uh, information copying some of the floppy disks ah floppy disks now for the millennials who are listening floppy disks are ancient tools where we can store data and information and they were three half inches by three and a half inches i think <laughs> and you know i don't know how much we can store on them two or three megabytes i can't remember anyway <laughs> nothing yeah nothing <laughs> so so I gathered few uh, floppy disks which contain the entire Al-Qaeda program on explosives, bomb making, chemical weapons, explosives, you know, uh, biological weapons, poisons. I gathered it all basically there. And I also basically applied myself to study on the map all the locations of the camps, of the places, of the, uh, you know, uh, houses of the leadership. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that at that time? Are you thinking vengeance? Are you thinking I'm going to stop these guys? Are you thinking I'm going to go to somebody with this information? Why are you gathering that intel? I think uh, it was for me insurance policy. I got you. Yeah, because I, I wasn't leaving Afghanistan to become a spy. And let me you know put it this way. I wasn't leaving to become a spy. I was leaving to go back to university and to study history and then to become a history teacher. That was my dream, which was a naive dream. Um, now, much to the delight and the relief of my would-be students, it never happened. Uh, so, you know, I uh, left to Qatar. I arrived there, you know, only to be actually detained by the Qatari intelligence. They were waiting for me, funny enough. Um, and, uh, you know, and they were aware of my arrival thanks to a tip by the French intelligence. How did they know? I have no idea. So, you know, uh, once I was there, I was... You know, of course, like you know, basically interrogated. And the in the first forty-five minutes, basically, they were you know, trying to be intimidating. You know, the Qatari intelligence uh, officials. You know, they were trying to be really intimidating and trying to scare me and whatever. And what they found from my side was a, a very cooperative and you know, you know, friendly you know individual. Uh, so that's when they switched on the lights. You know, because of course it was dark at my side, and you know. They, you know, they switched on the lights and I can see their faces now. And they were telling me, uh, what's going on here? Why are you being so, you know, nice and friendly and, you know, uh, you know. Uh, so I said, well, you know, maybe you caught me at the right time, basically. Actually, I came here because I was leaving. And I explained to them the whole thing, as I explained it to you now. So they said, okay, one minute. So they left the room you know, all five, six of them. And then, you know, I think they were discussing something. Minutes later, they came back and they all came back to shake my hand and to hug me so tight and to say, well done, you know, well done, we believe you. So now we have a lot of questions for you. Would you be willing to answer? And they are coming from a Western intelligence service. Of course, you know, later I was told it was the French uh, regarding a specific individual, a specific plot, a specific, you know, uh, incident. Uh, so I was happy to supply them with all the information they needed. It was groundbreaking as far as they understand. Um, and they said to me by the end of the nine days, I was their guest. Of course, the treatment was amazing. You know, basically, I ended up basically being brought 
meals from the nearby five-star hotel of the Sheraton, um, you know, to make it, <laughs> you know, to make my uh, stay comfortable. But then they told me that we know that you want to go to a normal life, but we can't offer you this in Qatar. Qatar at that time, it was 1998. It was as in Doha, it was a city of 250,000 people. Wow. You will be meeting many of your friends on daily basis. You will just run into mm. them in the mosques and the supermarkets and you know, wherever you go. I mean, and so it's not safe for you here. We suggest that you are better protected if you are to go under the protection of a larger country, a more powerful agency that will, you know, make use of you, but at the same time protect you. Um, I said, okay, and who do you have in mind? They said, well, of course, the French are extending their, you know, warm welcome uh, because they already been hearing you via video link, you know, for the past nine days. Um, and also there are the British and the Americans. So I said, okay, and how long do I have to make up my mind? You know, basically like in a day or two, uh, no, 30 minutes. So 30 minutes to make up my mind. And so I remember I, you know, sat down, thought to myself, you know, basically if the dear Lord got me out of Afghanistan into here, into the lap of the you know, intelligence services and I already trusted in his judgment, if this is his judgment, so be it. Um, I decided not the French, I don't want to learn another language and I'm not exactly very fond of them to begin with. Um, then, uh, you know, the Americans, you know, I just survived their cruise missile attack just a few months ago. I can't just, you know, you know, be lovey-dovey with someone who just, you know, basically pressed the button to kill me just a few months ago. Um, however, the British, there is an affinity. My grandfather fought for the British in Iraq in 1915. Um, and in later life, I realized basically that my father worked for the uh, UK Foreign Office, possibly intelligence services in the 1960s and 70s. So uh, that was a, you know, a revelation that I didn't expect. Mm. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, I decided, well, there is affinity with the British already. I've been to London before on a mission for Al-Qaeda. Um, there is some familiarity there. So I chose, you know, basically to go and work with the uh, British intelligence services. So that night, boarded the plane, uh, British Airways flight, and I uh, flew to London. Once you got there, how soon did they find out that you're with MI6, if not while you're there for years? And if they did find out, did anybody reach out to you? Were you ever worried? Was your life ever threatened? Were you living a peaceful life? What happened next? Well, of course, uh, MI6 was amazing at uh, concocting a cover story for my arrival. Uh, the Qatari hospital uh, in Qatar uh, decided that my situation is life-threatening, that they need to uh, send me to a hospital in the UK. So they flew me there, you know, under the pretense. And once I'm there, you know, a hospital room was ready for me. And I invited some of my friends from Al-Qaeda who were based in London to come and see me. So they can see for real, basically, that I was you know, basically hospitalized um, and paid for by the Qatari embassy. Uh, that all, you know, basically uh, laid the fears. And then it was by the invitation of members of Al-Qaeda in London that I stayed in London, you know, basically for the foreseeable future. 
in order to help them with lots of things, including recruitment, fundraising, and other uh, activities. So suddenly, it's like the effort by MI6 paid off. But the idea was that I'm supposed to be in London for two months for debriefings. You know, so the debriefing of MI6 about everything that I knew, including the you know the uh, maps and the floppy disks, basically that I brought with me the data on. Uh, Al-Qaeda's activities and bomb making and explosive and chemical weapons and everything else. Uh, that debriefing lasted seven months. You know, I didn't know I had so much knowledge in my head, but it turns out to be you know, the case. Like, you know, I knew so much. So the idea is, you know, I was told, I remember I arrived, it was um, the, you know, the, I think 16th or 17th of December. When I arrived in London, it was just Christmas, uh, you know, about to, uh, you know, to, <laughs> to come the week after. The, you know, the MI5 and MI6 counterterrorism officers who greeted me said, you know, you know, Christmas, you know, came very early this year. You know, uh, we didn't know that, you know, Santa come dressed in a beard like yours. <laughs> so, you know, that was um, a wonderful thing to hear. Of course, you know, um, when I arrived there, the uh, British intelligence services, both MI5 and MI6, were just starting to recruit more and more from their internal offices and other departments into the counterterrorism. Until Nairobi and Tanzania, um, you know, attacks, uh, the uh, MI6 was focusing on the former Soviet Union republics, the proliferation of nuclear materials, you know, the gun running out of the Ukraine and other places, uh, counter espionage, you know, uh, all of that thing. Uh, MI5 was focusing on the IRA, you know, the uh, Irish uh, terrorism um, and organized crime and the mafia coming out of Russia. So there was, you know, uh, that was their focus. So basically, suddenly, you know, the uh, offices of Islamic counterterrorism within MI5 and MI6 need to swell their ranks. And I came at the same time, you know, the same time frame. So... For me, they were bringing more and more of their analysts to every meeting in order to learn, to study, to understand, you know, and so to, you know, so basically it was the timing of my arrival, I think, basically that, you know, at later years, I was told that I did make a difference. You know, they always used to tell me that your, the timing of your arrival made a lot of difference. It was just the right time when we are about, you know, to recruit more and more people from within the ranks. You know, they needed a crash course immediately, basically, on what's happening. You were the right, you know, I won't say guinea pig, you know, but, <laughs> you know, you were the right person to come at the right time in order to explain it all. Um, and at the time, I was only 20. How long did you stay with MI6? Until I was 28, eight years. Eight years you were with them. So, so uh, uh, now you're still in UK today. Uh, yes. No death threats. I mean, they, they tried twice, you know. I already had the fatwa on my head in 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, um, uh, you know, two attempts on my life, once in 2009 uh, in London, and another, which was a serious one, actually, it was in 2016 in Bahrain. Um, that was supposed to coincide with the 15th anniversary of 9-11. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, like, you know, it's not uh, plain sailing, but at the same time, um, you know, I'm not exactly like, you know, I mean, uh, afraid. At the end of the day, if I was uh, willing to sacrifice my life for the wrong, you know, cause, it would be extremely hypocritical of me 
you know, if I'm to be a coward, you know, working for the right cause. What a mindset to have. What a mindset to have, to know that you go through that where it becomes normal to be a martyr, to give your life to something. But at that time, you don't believe in it, but still it influences you so much that one day you will accept the fact that you're willing to give your life to something of uh, positive and good. Makes it a little bit more, like it almost desensitizes you to it. Like, ah, it's not a big deal. If I'm giving it up for the right reasons, I'll do it. I don't know if a lot of people are going to go through that desensitization, if that's even a word to go through it. So, so let me let me change the, the direction of the conversation here. We'll wrap up. This has been great. Is from the outside looking in, you're in UK. You know, one, one question is just for me personally. You know, you mentioned something about Khomeini and he was doing the tapes when he was in France and he was sending it in and putting the taxis and everybody would listen to it and he caused a revolution, the Shah fell, et cetera, et cetera. Are you aware of who were the political prisoners that he had, the 3,000 political prisoners that he had when Jimmy Carter was forcing him because he, he, he was campaigning on human rights and he wanted the Shah to let go of the political prison, prisoners that he had in Iran. Some of them were today, which I don't know if you're familiar with today is the communist at that time. But was, was, and were any of the people that he had there individuals that later on ended up causing 9-11 that the political prisoners in Iran or you're not aware of it? Uh, between you and me, I'm not aware of it. Uh, okay, the only, it. Yeah, the only person I'm aware basically that, you know, more or less had um, provided help and logistics, like you know, for Al Qaeda in, uh, in Afghanistan, and uh, enabling some of the drug trade to go through Sistan and Balochistan, you know, from the Afghan border, was uh, the leader of the Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, which they later took uh, took out Qasem Soleimani Indeed. under Trump. So, you you, you, you know, uh, from the outside looking into U.S. What do you see happening in U.S.? I mean, you've been around the block for a while. You know, does U.S. in where you are, U.K., when you're watching BBC, I know you watch CNN as well because you mentioned CNN. What is your interpretation of where America is at right now? Well, what is what worries me, and do you remember I uh, talked about the uh, civil wars in Yugoslavia? Clearly, that's why I'm asking the question. I remember when you said that, yeah. I always worry uh, when people of different political and religious uh, and ideological persuasions start to view the other side as the enemy so much. You know, there is um, a word you know, or a phrase attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, which says that love your friends moderately for they may become your enemies one day and detest your enemies moderately for they may become your friends one day. Moderation is the key to the longevity of nations. And, you know, no matter Who how much. Who said this? Uh, that's the Prophet Muhammad. You know, moderation is you know, the key to the longevity of nations. We can't have a situation where the left hate the right so much they will call them Nazis. And, you know, the right hate the left so much that they will see them as subversive communists, you know, uh, revolutionaries. I mean, there has to be that middle ground somewhere where we all can meet and agree on something, while at the same time, you know, when we moderate our positions on the left and on the right, then we can guarantee the longevity and the coexistence between all of these factions.
for the benefit of the greater good. What is the greater good in my opinion, the nation state? I always, you know, be, get asked the question, who are you loyal to? You know, Islam, the UK, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. I say, no, I am loyal to the nation state. To the nation state, wherever that nation state may be, as long as they adhere to the basic principles of the nation state, with the institutions of the nation state, judicial, you know, um, and otherwise, you know, in order to maintain, you know, prosperity, uh, stability, security, law and order, you know, for everyone, you know, the civil war that we have in Islam right now is actually between factions who want to destroy the modern nation state and the modern nation state. We have the Sunni political Islam, the Muslim Brotherhood. They want to bring down the nation state. You know, we have the uh, militant Sunni Islam, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, the Taliban, whatever. They want to bring down the nation state. We have the political and militant Shia Islam, Wilayat al-Faqih system in Tehran. They want to bring down the nation state, all for the sake of a borderless, you know, superstructure of Islamic empire they want to revive based on fictional ideas of a Mahdi, a Messiah, and whatever, basically, which doesn't exist. It's a fabrication from Islamic history. The reality is there is no escaping the fact that the only guarantor of safety, security, stability, law and order is that nation state. And you can't have a nation state if you always have people who, on the right, always detest the government, and its institutions and it's you know basically principle uh, in a duty in protecting its citizens or on the left who basically say no borders no nations that's it just you know basically de defund the police no more you know basically uh, nation state institutions we have this problem we need to bring both fringes down a notch or two in order basically to ensure the survival of the nation state because Many of those who oppose the nation state, either on the right or the left, did not see what I saw when I spent six years of my life in four different war zones, where I saw what the collapse of the nation state means. No ATM outside to get your cash, you know, no safety, no security, no fire brigade, no police force, you know, only warlords who would rape your women and children, only you know, people who would steal your food, you know, and, there, and you don't think about survival until the next five years when you graduate. No, you think about survival for the next five days, sometimes even five hours or five minutes. That is why young millennials, you know, in the States need to take a breath and read some history books about what a collapse of the nation state really means. What a powerful last 45 seconds, what you just said. I wish we had more time together. I got to tell you, I've enjoyed this. Uh, I was told about this interview uh, two hours before you and I sat down together. You know the story already. I told you off the record what took place, but yeah. <laughs> I am so glad we did this interview today. I am so glad we did this interview today. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope the right people that watch this, it'll also get them to question certain mindsets they have and certain ways that we can all improve to uh, become a little bit more civil than divided as we are right now in the US. Anyways, having said that, we're gonna put the links below to both your books. Once again, thank you so much for making the time to be a guest on Valley Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Pleasure.
Al-Qaeda to MI6. What a story. Did you notice every time I'd ask questions, he can go deeper and deeper and deeper in some of the answers he made? Curious to know your takeaway. Comment below. If you enjoyed it, press the thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. I got two other interviews for you to consider. One of them is with uh, Hamoudi Jassim, who was part of the Iraqi army. I think he was the youngest sergeant major that they had, and then he became a spy. He turned on them. If you're not seeing that, click over here. And the other one is a uh, story of Latif Yahya, who was Saddam Hussein's son's double, and he had a chance to be around him, and the stories he tells is mind-boggling. If you want to be entertained, click over here. With that being said, have a good one, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.